Welcome back to the Filmographies Podcast. I'm joined once again by Brad Bischoff. Uh, we spent uh, a good long while discussing all of your shorts in our last episode, and now I'm very excited to have you back to talk about your feature debut, Grasshoppers, uh, which just came out uh, January of this year. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we yeah, spent, like I just said, a lot of time getting into like your shorts. You wanted to get into the features for a while. Uh, so I'm very curious how Grasshoppers came around and how this ended up being the first feature of your career. Yeah, dude, it was funny because uh, uh, just a funny story, because a lot of those shorts had played at Chicago International. And I remember this one time I was at this party and uh, someone came up and they were just like, oh, Brad, uh, no, another short, huh? Very, very <laughs> cool. Very nice. <laughs> wow. I remember laughing, laughing so yeah. hard. Because, yeah, at the time, it was such a source of confliction for me because mm -hmm. I I was very happy with those shorts, but you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say like, yeah, I, look, I want to make a feature as much as the next person. But um, I just, I never felt comfortable running into war with a script I didn't believe in, you know, like one that I didn't feel was gonna, you know, keep me up at night or that I wouldn't stop chasing. And, um, you know, I, I'd written a lot, uh, but I would always get to a place where I would end up falling out of love with it every time. Um, and so I, I had so many different versions of grasshoppers. It was called so many different things, but I, I eventually started looking at all these stories and they're all about a couple, like a husband and a wife kind of going through, um, going through a, like falling in and out of love, like about a codependent relationship. Um, I know I mentioned love me if you dare earlier, that French film, that was a big inspiration. Um, and I, I had wanted to do something that was romantic, that, that was also dramatic. And the biggest thing that was in the back of my mind was something that sort of shifted genres by the end of the movie, where, and even if it wasn't a full genre twist, I always wanted it to start big, beautiful, and romantic, like with dollies and, and, and wides and slow pans and end very contemporary and like chaotic and handheld and like, you know, what you see in a lot of modern indie films. Um, and I, I wanted to see that shift correlate with the story so it all made sense. So for me, the device ended up being uh, a codependent couple in marriage in suburbia and using alcohol as a, as a device uh, to sort of get through um, the, the visual change that happens. So it makes sense. Um, and so I had written maybe 15 different versions of grasshoppers. And right before uh, Celeste had, was about to give birth to our second, we're here in Ventura and I, we go to see a midwife. And she's this very mystical, like she's up in Ojai, she looks like Meryl Streep. And her whole, her whole thing is she helps women give birth by knowing what their birth story was so she can help you open up and you know, it, it was Celeste's goal to deliver naturally, which she, she did both times. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But so we're there in the room, and, and so she's trying to get to know Celeste's birth story, but the whole time she's looking at me. And my daughter, she's probably two, she's asleep on me. And I was just there for support, and I'm like, why is she looking at me? Mm -hmm. And she goes, what's, what's his birth story? And we had just talked to my mom a couple weeks beforehand, and found out, so both my older brothers were delivered naturally. And then right when I was being delivered, uh, she really wanted to get an epidural. But it was too late in the process, so that she ended up getting uh, a shot of Demerol, which is kind of like a painkiller. And the woman was like, that's very interesting. It's almost like you were born in limbo. And it was mm -hmm. kind of like, huh, like, what does she mean by that? And she was like, well, when you're delivered naturally, you're placed on the, on, on the mother's body and you can kind of naturally find your way to the breast. Whereas if you're born with a painkiller of sort, you have to be led to the breast and shown where it is to feed because you're, you're kind of numb in a way. And she's like, do you have trouble finishing things? And I remember I just started crying, like in the room, you know, tears kind of rolling down my face and I was uh, because of a couple of reasons. One, I looked at all of my short films and realized almost all of them are either about somebody stuck in limbo 
or in some sort of like decision that has to be made or the fear of change. Um, a lot of them take place in the suburbs. Uh, and I just started seeing this like thread through all of my work. And then I looked at grasshoppers and how I had gone through 15, 20 different versions of this screenplay and would always find a reason why not to finish it. I would always find a reason to go back to the beginning to start the whole thing over again. And it always would end up becoming a different movie. And so I was like, damn it, like, I just have to finish some, I just have to finish something. And I mean, it sounds funny and it's like very mystical, but then later that evening I pulled a tarot card and uh, it had all of these lines moving in, in different directions and then one at the top. And I was like, you know what? I just got to pick one and just go with it and see what happens. So I ended up going back to the beginning and looking at the first draft I ever wrote of Grasshoppers, which, I mean, you're in film, like, you know, they call that the throw up draft. <laughs> and I was like, you know, cause everything just comes out. And I was like, I kind of like the throw up draft because I was sick enough to write it. Like I felt something so deeply that I had to physically just throw it up onto paper. And I'm like, and then I spend all this time trying to clean it up and like not show people the mess. And it's like, well, there's a lot of vulnerability in the throw up draft. So I went back to that and that was the one I ended up going with. And there was some things that, I mean, obviously once you start making a movie, things change, but it, it was in that first draft. And this happens often. Sometimes I'll go back and just, just look at that little note that I put in my phone or that first thing, that first seed. And it's like, well, I wrote that down for a reason, you know, and then, and then you start trying to find all these different ways of like, well, how do I, how do I tell it like this? Or how can I fit it into this box? And it's like, don't, don't think about any of that stuff. And so, yeah, I ended up finally committing to grasshoppers after that mystical meeting with a midwife. Wow. <laughs> That's a, yeah, an amazing story for finding the film. Uh, but yeah, I think it's so true what you said. It's something that I always try to do whenever I'm like embarking on writing something because I think it's similar if like there's all these ideas kind of constantly like this is maybe something this is an interesting idea and it's like oh this could be something and you start getting more into it and I always try to write down like the the core idea like on a note card uh when like going through it so it's like no matter what like it kind of has to relate to this uh because I think in my own writing I'll like go way off track and like I'll just kind of explore whatever comes up in a moment <laughs> yeah. like oh and then now we're gonna follow this character for like 20 pages and it'll be fine where instead it's like this is the original idea this is what you kind of need to stay focused on otherwise it will just can grow into something else or all these different drafts uh so I love uh you talking about that like, like kind of highlighting that part of the process um and so once you kind of found this film what did it feel like I guess did you feel like you finally found that I'm willing to go to war for this idea? Like what was kind of going through your head and yeah, getting, getting so, the ball rolling? Yeah. I finally, I finally committed. And then that's kind of how I am. Like once I commit to something, like I, I have to see it through. Mm -hmm. I knew I had enough reasons to love it through the whole process. There was, uh, it, we'll, we'll get into it, but um, there was just a lot for me to love about it. Um, and so, I mean, I did a Kickstarter uh, that made it very real. You know, we, we raised 30 grand. It was like a 45 day Kickstarter. It's one of the most terrifying things I've ever done. Um, cause I had no ace in the hole. I had no like rich person who was going to come in at the end and make sure we could get whatever we got. Um, I just started it, you know, and tried to use my good graces around Chicago and literally every connection I'd ever made asking for $5. I also interviewed a lot of people who had done successful Kickstarter campaigns and took little nuggets from each person and, you know, always having a reason to post. I still had Facebook at the time. So like always having a reason to post, you know, always not just blasting people, but like actually having news. I set up live events like every single week. Um, I had a lot of screenings that were done on my behalf. Music Box hosted a retrospective of all my shorts. Um, you know, I had a couple other of those. Uh, and so anyway, once we, once we finished the campaign, then we had that in the bag and we decided to do like a test shoot, you know, with, with that money. Um, not, not with all of it, with a small piece of it. Um, and that's how I ended up finding Eva Gocheva, who, uh, is the lead, the leading actress. And, uh, the actor, I had Malik at the time 
it's it's so funny. I'm acting like you've seen this. Obviously, I never released it, but I did a test shoot with with Malik and Eva, mm-hmm. um, and that that was actually the last time I shot with Jake. The last project that was released was Nomad, but uh, we did this test shoot together, and I was so it's funny. Like you're preparing so much for this thing that you're so excited for. You know, you feel like it's going to be everything. That when I got on set, like on the day, it was just a test shoot, but like. I was very rigid. You know what I mean? I was not flexible. I was not like, if I were related to football, you know, like I was not just like letting it rip. Like mm-hmm. I was very rigid. I'm like, these are the plays we called. Like, these are the plays that we're going to, you know, we're going to run these plays. Even if the defense is like showing me something else, I'm like, no, we're running these plays. And uh, it was, it was, I mean, between, you know, between you and me, whoever's listening, it was terrible. It was a terrible test shoot. Like, um, the best part about it was finding Eva, who I completely fell in love with on screen. She was amazing, uh, great presence, and she flew in from New York just for that. And so that was that was the biggest takeaway. It was like, wow, I found I found I found Eva. She's going to be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I I had to put everything else on hold. Like we were ready to shoot. We had locations. We had, you know, we even had a grant from Kodak. We we're potentially going to shoot on film like it was crazy um but had to pull the plug because it just was not authentic our visual language was not right the act the the chemistry was not right like there were so many reasons not to do it and only ego was telling me to do it so you know i decided not to do it and then it took another uh number of years ultimately before we ended up shooting so yeah and how long is it between uh, like doing field song and up to this test shoot? Uh, like, what's the time difference there? So pretty pretty close actually. Like those were pretty close together. Field song okay. I think was right after the test shoot, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, the test shoot. Um, I think it was right before we moved to wow. California. Yeah, we did that test shoot, and we're like, hey, we're about to shoot. I'm gonna do this test shoot. Move to California. And then we're going to come back and shoot like in six months, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had to, yeah, we, we didn't have to, but I chose to kind of pull the plug on it. Yeah. And is it, are you recognizing it's not really working like on set of this test shoot or is it something you're kind of finding out later as you're looking back on set, footage? Yeah. yeah. On set, I was like, this collaboration isn't, isn't where it should be. And I think that takes a lot of courage and honesty to realize that and mm-hmm. to talk about it and to, and to not just like, well, we planned it. We're going to do it anyway. It was like, no, like this isn't, this isn't right. And so, I mean, as soon as we wrapped, Jake and I looked at each other and we're like, let's go hang out on the driveway. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. we went out on the driveway and it was pretty much like, dude, like I value you as a friend and like, I want to just keep that. Like, but our, our, our artistic collaboration just had gotten to a point where, I mean, it's funny, like you relate it to like a romantic relationship. It's like, we kind of just need to go see other people. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, love you, love what we have. Let's keep that. Let's focus on that. And like our, our collaboration for whatever reason, um, just, just isn't fulfilling anymore. You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't right. Uh, and he knew it too. So it wasn't anything neither one of us knew. So we talked about it and then, uh, yeah, same, same with Matt, like love him as a friend, but I mean, you find like, it's nothing personal, but like, just as a, as a filmmaker, like when you go do stuff, sometimes chemistry works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and so, yeah, that was another thing. Amicably, we both were like, yeah, you know, let's just, let's just uh, do something else together, you know? And I think, I forget if Nomad was either right before that or right after that, but um, you know, love him so much as an actor, but sometimes people are just different for different roles, you know? Yeah. Definitely. I think, yeah, what you said exactly right. It takes a lot of courage once you get all the way to that point of having raised money and doing test shoots and finding cast and crew to recognize that it's not what you want it to be uh, and being able to step away. And was it something you just knew you would come back to it or what was kind of going through your head of what you're going to do next? I went on a search. I knew I just for me, there's there's two actors who carry this whole movie. You know, and it's like you have, you have to everyone has to feel good about that. I had to go and really honestly, like work on my directing skills, because I mean, I was I was terrible. Like it was a, it was a terrible day for me. Like 
I didn't know what to say. I was I think it's just because I had hyped up everything so much, you know, mm-hmm. that I got there and it was just I was like in over my head. Like I forgot how to use a camera. I forgot like how to everything. I just I had like my plan and I just kept looking at my sheet and was like, well, I wrote that. So that's what we have to do. And like, even if it wasn't working, I just couldn't find my way through the weeds. Um, so I had to, I had to work on my skills. And while I was doing that, I was searching for my leading, my leading actor. Um, and, a, and the, one of the producers of the movie, Justin, uh, ended up referring me to his cousin, Saleh, who ultimately is the lead. And it was wild timing because I remembered I, the first time I had really left home, uh, I had gone on a trip to Telluride. I was part of the Telluride student symposium in 2007. Um, and it was my first like solo trip. First time going to like a film festival is I, even before I had gone to Chicago international. Um, so I was at Telluride part of this program. And the first film I saw was the band's visit. And Saleh is the is one of the leads in that movie, and I, I loved him, you know. And so I'd, I'd known of him, I'd seen his work, and when he mentioned him, I, I mean, I looked him up, and he's he's just such a wonderful actor and does so many huge foreign movies, and had never done a U.S. movie. And I'm like, oh, how interesting! Like, and on the day that he had introduced me, is very like a coincidence or not, but it was on the same day I had seen the band's visit ten years earlier. Wow. You know, so it's, yeah. now it's like 2017 and I'm like, you know, same end of August and I'm about to reach out to Saleh because um, I, I had his email. And so I was just like, hey, here, I sent him three short films, uh, Where the Buffalo Roam, Field Song, and one other one, I can't remember, uh, and the script and just sent a very passionate letter and was like, you know, I, I would love to meet you. And if you're ever interested in doing an American film, you know, I hope you'll consider mine. And he watched the shorts, he read the script and he got back to me in like a week and was just like, let's get on Skype. I love it. I want to do it. Um, And then, so then became a process of, we Skyped, we emailed, we had phone calls for like another year and a half. Um, And uh, just, I mean, not rehearsing, but just like talking, sharing inspirations. He kind of knew that it wasn't, I mean, he's used those other films he does are very different budget levels and like, Mm -hmm you know, months of shooting and like, look, I got like 17 days, you know what I mean? And we have a Kickstarter budget, you know, and we're going to try to do, you know, with what we can. And so, you know, he, he understood that. And so we just had to kind of get all our schedules together. And, and then eventually when it was, when it was right, um, yeah, we booked, we just booked his airfare. And I mean, we all, it was a type of thing, like, uh, I mean, I feel like I'm jumping ahead, but yeah, we all like lived together and, you know, it it was, I'm sure we'll get into that, but it was wild. Yeah. And so was meeting him to that kind of feel like the catalyst for you of it's starting to make sense, like going back into war, like you said, on this film, like was, was that yeah. part of the spark to get it going again? Yeah. So the wild thing was I knew we didn't have enough budget wise to be able to like fly him out. He lives in Palestine, like mm-hmm. to do a test shoot with Eva, fly him back. You know, it was like, let's all just get on a phone call. So it was me, Sally and Eva, and just like read the, it's so funny, but like just read the chemistry over the phone and obviously just diving into his work and like watching him as an actor and talking to Eva because she's, you know, I I'm, had become friends with her now, really looking at her work and then just being like, wow, okay, like can this work? Like it's going to be a leap of faith. Um, and eventually, yeah, just having to like put your faith in it and go to bat. And so ultimately it came down to, a leap of faith for all of us yeah did you end up going back to kickstarter for uh additional budget or is that just for the test shoot you're saying there wasn't enough uh yeah so to we, fly just, him out? we just took a piece of of that original kickstarter budget to do the test shoot so we still mm-hmm. had we still had some in the bank um and i had also whoever's listening highly recommend gotham labs in new in brooklyn uh, they do this thing every year called the Gotham Narrative Labs. It used to be IFP when I did it, um, but they have a, they have two things. One is a narrative labs program where you have to be in post on your first or second feature. Um, but the other thing is Project Week, and they take like I think up to seventy two people. So it's in narrative labs they take ten. You know, so mm-hmm. it's it's very different. But Project Week, if you get into that, 
it's with a project you haven't yet shot. So you have a script, you have a budget, you have everything that's ready to go and you show up and you get to meet with people for three days straight. And every meeting you have, it's almost like speed dating, mm -hmm. but everybody you're meeting has requested a meeting with you because they saw your project. Mm -hmm. So every, it's like a warm lead, every table you're sitting at. And they're with, they're kind of like gatekeepers to the industry. They all work for like, you know, all these bigger companies or independent companies, some are agents. And so you never know who you're, who, I mean, you know, right beforehand who you're going to talk to, but um, it's a really great event. And through that, right before I had gone, Filmmaker Magazine had reached out because they had seen my short films and they had just heard about the script from Grasshoppers. Uh, and they put me on the uh, 25 new faces of independent film list that came out. And so that came out that week, right when I was there, because we had gotten into project week. So as I'm taking these meetings, there's that little bit of extra buzz from that magazine feature. Um, and I ended up meeting uh, Gil Holland, who's a, who's a great producer, prolific. He's done like so many different things, uh, who came in uh, as like a last minute, like, you know, investor on the project, um, who ended up introducing me to, to uh, Jared Smith and Sherman Brown, who from Night Shamrock, who without them, we couldn't have, you know, finished the movie. So they were they were tremendous yeah so it sounds like a lot of this is kind of just coming into right place right time like you spend a lot of time preparing and getting yourself yeah. ready but years yeah. you know what i mean mm -hmm. years and then all of a sudden it's like okay like we're getting some steam we're getting some buzz and it's just like okay like got got to do it like now now you got to do it you know while yeah. while those articles are being passed around while this is happening and trying to just like it's like you're surfing and here comes the wave and it's like you're gonna you're gonna either get on and surf and it doesn't matter if you fall you just gotta try and so mm -hmm. we just kept trying we're like okay we're gonna we're gonna do it yeah and so it just went from there yeah and then at what point were you ready to start uh production like how long did that kind of finishing up pre-production take and I, I guess like what year was it when you were uh shooting the film so that was 2018 um and that stuff happened, I think, in September. So by January, we had booked his airfare and we were all set for a late February shoot mm -hmm. of, of 2019. Okay. Yeah. And we ended up shooting the month of March, three weeks in March. Wow. So yeah, three weeks total. How big, what did the crew look like for this film? Uh, Crazy. I mean, yeah. it was, you, you could maybe call it a swing crew because we had like a few dedicated people and then every day people are doing different things, you know, so we would kind of get who we could. Um, but it was a, it was a ride or die bruiser kamikaze crew. Like I love mm -hmm. every single one of those people could not have done it without them. They literally, I mean, every now and then we'd stop and just laugh and we're just like, how are we pulling this off? And it was because of, it was because of the wonderful people who came and, uh, and just helped every single day. It was crazy. Yeah. And how did you find some of this crew? I know you mentioned it's like new cinematographer you hadn't worked with before. Uh, yeah. So I was set to shoot with a DP who I'd worked with for, for a couple of projects. And I mean, we had met like over the summer for like two years and like shot listed out the whole movie. I mean, this is, this is going to sound crazy, but like, yeah, we had all our locations for a long time. We had this whole clubhouse golf course, all these houses. And then, uh, as we're about to shoot a week before we started shooting, um, we, you know, fell, uh, uh, into some circumstances where we had to let that cinematographer go. So a week before we started shooting, we didn't have a DP. I mean, literally the most, one of the most stressful, you know, and yeah. so not only not having a DP, but someone who I've never worked with, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So, Justin and Lisa, who are the who are the producers, are scrambling. They're looking at reels, and they end up showing me um, Daphne Daphne Wu's reel, and I loved it. We got on a phone call that day, and she was on a plane the next morning. Wow! You know, and it was the type of thing where we really. It's funny. I always relate it to football, but it's like you have this giant playbook. And I'm like, if I go through that, I've been working on for like years, you know, and I'm like, mm -hmm. if I go through like every single play, it's going to be overwhelming. So like, I feel like we just, we kind of just have to take it day by day at this time. 
And it was really cool because she came to set every day with these fresh eyes, you know, whereas I had been, you know, on it like, uh, you know, crazy man for years. And so it ended up being a really beautiful collaboration. Um, yeah. yeah. And we also, that two weeks before that, you know, the golf, the golf club manager had, had been replaced. So There's a new manager. So we temporarily lost that. We had to like win him back mm. by convincing him that like, no, the previous regime said, you know, we're allowed to XYZ. And, you know, there was just so much of like, we're st this house got sold. So we had to replace it with this house that looks mm. similar, but it's different. And, you know, a lot of stuff like that was happening. Yeah. Um, and then even I'll share a, a couple more stories later that are, that are near and dear to me, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was wild. And then Mike Kanucky was a friend of mine from Chicago who introduced me to a lot of, he's the production designer and one of the associate producers, but he introduced me to a lot of that kamikaze crew that came in and, and was just, I mean, yeah, so many great people, so many great people. Yeah, no, it's amazing at this like budget level and how quick things take, you really need people who are willing to show up and get things done. And uh, honestly, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, it was a miracle. It was mm -hmm. really a miracle. And all the all the locations, you know, opened their homes to us. We actually we slept in those homes that wow. we shot in. You know, um, I was born in Barrington, and I kind of used that to be as like an inn where I, and, you know, I didn't grow up there. I grew up in Buffalo Grove, um, but I met this realtor, Lori Rowe, who introduced me to like all these incredible homeowners. You know, and I mean. They're honestly, they're angels, all of them. They opened their homes and fed us. And yeah, it was one of those beautiful experiences. Yeah. I was curious about the locations. Uh, it was, I assume I was part of the original story idea going from these houses to houses. And uh, were they all actually within this one neighborhood that you found or was it more jumping around to different places? Most of them are in the, in this one gated community called Windstone, which is beautiful. Um, and it's around the actual golf course that we that we shot on too. Um, and yeah, I think there's a couple houses that aren't from like the opening house, their actual main house was in St. Charles. Um, but some uh, a lot of those other ones are in Barrington. yeah, 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 I mean, the yeah, the locations are amazing and like say so much about the film. Um, I think this does the kind of idea of the film kind of rewinding a little bit. Uh, I'm curious to hear from you some of the like films writers painters any any art that you're looking at as inspiration for this film uh because i know there's one in particular that you've <laughs> mentioned before i know and I, honestly i'm going to lead with that because mm -hmm. um there's a good story there just like when i was a kid my mom similar to my my oldest brother wes like my mom watched a lot of movies and so i remember walking to the living room this one time and there's this vhs copy of of um frank perry's the swimmer playing on the tv and I just, I'm, I might've been 15 or 16 and there's Burt Lancaster in a swimsuit, like crying outside of this door, like knocking on the door, no one's answering. Mm -hmm. And then the credits roll. And I, I like, I'm just like walking by, like I was probably going to go skate, you know? Mm -hmm. And I looked at my mom and she's like quietly sobbing on the couch. And I'm just like, the hell is this? You know? <laughs> and then I'm like, yeah. all right. And, I, and it didn't resonate with me. Like I went off and I went about my day. But then as I got older, I mean, I'm in my mid twenties and there's a part of me that's kind of like an old soul. Uh, you know, I'm very sensitive and I, you know, obviously have gotten deeper and deeper into art since when I was 15. And I end up like that image just like returns to me, you know, cause I, I'm in, I'm, I'm like, what was that? I remember calling my mom, I was living in Chicago and I was like, what was that thing of the guy in the swimsuit? And she's like, oh, that's the swimmer. And so I end up watching it and I just, I'd never seen a movie like that. You know, um, and I just was completely blown away by it, 60s in general, you know, and uh, that got me into the who wrote the story, John Cheever. And I started reading his material. And um, yeah, so the swimmer was a huge influence for me and finding a way of doing like a contemporary version of the swimmer in some way. I mean, I remember at one point I was like, oh, there's they're going through swimming pools. And I'm like, that, that's already been done. You know, yeah. what I mean? like. <laughs> There's, you know, be inspired by it, but don't, don't rip it off completely. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I started watching other movies because the swimmer, 
I love the symbolism of it. And even though there's like threads of, of alcoholism in it, like I knew I wanted mine to be a little more like over the, over the top with, with being literal about it and having it be a device where each, each drink is different. Like it, you know, it, it's, um, I'd also watched uh, days of wine and roses with uh, Jack Lemon and, that was another big influence on it of, of a couple being consumed by the bottle, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like starts with them consuming the bottle, but it quickly flips to the bottle consuming them. Um, and there, there was a couple of other movies in, in that time period too. Um, I mean, I know, and I know it's different, but Terrence Malick's Badlands, the, the suburban opening shots of that movie um before they start to go on their rampage was like a big influence mm-hmm. uh, and uh and then yeah photography wise i know i had mentioned gregory crudson as like a there's something about his like theatrically staged suburban shots that to me uh tell a whole story in one image and so i knew in the first half of the movie I wanted to rely on long master takes. Like that was like a choice, you know, um, where I'm, ca- I'm count my audience. I'm counting on uh, an audience who is engaged and engrossed by the story, you know, knowing that a payoff is coming, you know what I mean? You, by, by knowing you're in the hands of, of someone where it's like, there's where this is leading somewhere, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and it, it does require a little bit of patience and participation from the audience to get into that uh, end of the second act where I feel like it really starts to take off. But to me, that was kind of the point. Yeah, yeah, laying the groundwork to make that uh, reaction possible uh, is really interesting and, and yeah. And it doesn't work for everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I, I feel like it's, it's especially tough. I feel like I'm in love with this era of filmmaking uh, that, you know, you would go to the theater and you're like, you're there, you're watching it, you're there till the end. And there's not 10 cuts in every scene, you know? Um, and it's just, it is, it is, it's tough. I mean, you're at home, people are on their phones, passively watching. And yeah, the first, the first 40 minutes really require patience and to pay attention to what's being said and what's going on. Yeah. And how early in the process are you starting to think about the visual style? Is this still while you're writing it? Like these kind of visual rules almost that you have of like starting this way? Yeah. That, that sort of manifesto was like at the beginning. I mean, okay. similar to like Field Song, where I'm in that short, where I'm like, I know I want to do this thing visually. It just has to make sense with the script. So, man, there was this one scene in Grasshoppers that was really cool. It just, we didn't have the budget nor the time to make it look the way that it should have looked, but we still filmed it. And I, we had a couple cuts where it was in there, but the whole first half of the movie is static. Mm-hmm. And then there's this scene in the in the bar where they're playing pool and it's a static shot at the pool table and eva's arm comes back and literally hits the lens like her elbow hits the lens and the camera falls and it picks up and it turns handheld and then Mm -hmm. the rest of the movie is now in that language Mm -hmm. and that was something i was like so excited about that i was like we have to do that and like i said we filmed it it was in a couple cuts but it just didn't you know it, the idea was cooler than the execution. And I think that's a, again, that's another thing where you have to know when to like, when to call it, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, nah, it's cool, but it doesn't work. So got to cut it. But yeah. Yeah. Is that, that's really fascinating. Cause it is, it's one of those things that in theory, like just hearing that it's like, Oh yeah. Like I can totally see that like within the film, even like that working, uh, I guess. Yeah. What's kind of your, what was the thought process behind this in particular of this isn't working like this doesn't capture is this something or the actual like onset you were unsure about it and like not sure how it was working or uh not till post yeah. you started to question it yeah we only had like two takes with it um and the frame the frame itself i don't think we were the biggest fan of like we just found what we could with, like with our time mm-hmm. and the like the feasibility of doing that i like that's a stunt like i feel like we needed like a special effects person we needed like a piece of glass that we could put in front of the lens or there's a way to do it that i just wasn't smart enough to to do it i feel like how it should have been done so we were trying to mimic the camera movement with the elbow movement so we don't hit this 
multi-thousand dollar lens, yeah. you know, actually drop the camera. Mm -hmm. um, so it just, yeah, it required a stunt coordinator and we just couldn't, we didn't have the time or the budget to do yeah. it. Yeah, that's, yeah, the killing your darlings is probably one of the hardest parts. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which funny little story about that, the lens, like we got this set of Kawa anamorphics to shoot on and we only got it because the lens rental company quoted us wrong. Like mm. they, put, they put the decimal before the wrong zero. And <laughs> once they realized their mistake, they didn't send us the lenses and Justin called them. And in the, he's such a great producer in the calmest way possible was like, you have to honor the contract we signed, even though you put the wrong yeah. quote. And they were like, yeah, okay, you're right. And they sent us those lenses for three weeks. It was, it was again, it was a miracle. Yeah. A miracle. Yeah. It's hard to, yeah, like see any part of this movie that like wasn't meant to be like at this point, like all these things. Uh, Cause I mean, yeah, the lenses too. There's, I'm trying to think of, uh, I think like the first time I notice is like, I mean, it's very early on, but there's the lens choice where it's kind of warping a lot of the image uh, mm -hmm. where it almost seems like out of focus. I mean, can you just talk about what it went into like choosing that lens and the kind of psychological, uh, like just the other thought process behind these very specific choices. Visually. Yeah. When, when Daphne came on, she, she had this, you know, great vision to go along with the story and everything. Like she was, she was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, again, like I've been thinking about this for years and like, you know, once we got into the actual selection of lenses, her recommendation was that and kind of liked that warping on the sides. And there's something about those wides that I feel like added an element that was unexpected for me that I love because it's like, you're seeing this traditional, what would be an establishing like beauty shot and again, I wanted to set it up very like it's fairy tale, like it's it's like a 1970s, like too good to be true suburban setting. And if you are paying attention to those little edges, it's very subconscious, but it's like something's off here. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I don't know what it is, but like there's something off here and not everybody picks up on it. But when you do, it's kind of fun. Um, and especially when we get toward the end of the second act, we really started to lean in on that lens with the Steadicam stuff. Um, and, and originally, this is one of the things that Daphne had brought was I had thought as this film goes on, we're, we're actually going to shoot longer and longer lenses. So it becomes more claustrophobic and more flat. And we start losing the background everywhere until eventually we're like on, you know, very long lenses from across the room shooting completely chaotic close-ups, mm -hmm. which is interesting too. But she was like, well, what if we leaned more into this? distorted lens and we're actually it's still claustrophobic but we're just we're closer to them we're not flattening it and instead it's almost like we're right there with them and we did a couple tests on one of the days and we again it was cool because we didn't have time to like overthink anything so once we saw it and we liked it we just rode that feeling like the whole thing was like surfing waves yeah yeah i mean i think it really adds to the character of the film it's not something you see a lot and uh, I think it, it for me at least it really worked in the way that you were intending of there's like that feeling like it looks really nice and it fits like it like nothing's wrong but there's just a weird thing that's off you can't always put your finger on um, yeah and that made me think too I couldn't tell I thought it was used throughout exactly but there's definitely part where they're leaving the house the first time and they're dancing together and it seems like you go into a higher frame rate uh yeah. in those shots uh can you yeah. talk a little bit about that decision yeah, and that's interesting because that was something, again, Daphne brought that to the table for those scenes. Um, but that was interesting in Host that, I mean, it reminded me of something you had said earlier where you were kind of re-editing your feature or like coming back to a certain thing and like repositioning things that were shot in different times. So that that dancing sequence was, was originally just one sequence and it was when they are about to go into the clubhouse. And so we ended up taking pieces from that sequence and, and, you know, putting it in a nonlinear way where it actually feel, it works. Like it looks like this happened in between those houses, but when we shot it, it was much later in the story. So the shutter, the change in shutter was, was like, or frame rate was very much like it made sense for where the story was about to go, you know? 
in that end of the second act kind of thing. Um, but once we sort of just started placing it in and re-editing those scenes and adding little glimpses of that, it started to work in its own right. So we kind of, yeah, we just rolled with it. Yeah, no, it is super interesting. Uh, just, yeah, those like things that you can change that are like seem very subtle or like to you are like kind of minor almost once you, yeah, once you get to post, it's something that you didn't even plan on, but still kind of works yeah. within the film. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. And I'm curious too with casting, kind of going back to that a little bit too of writing, was the, uh, were they always was it always kind of an immigrant story in the script or did that come more through the casting once you were finding these actors uh was that always kind of an aspect that was in your mind yeah i think at the beginning it was in the it was in the back of my mind um it wasn't at the forefront because i i mean i considered all kinds of people for mm -hmm. for the week um but then once we started getting into casting i fell in love with saleh i felt like there's there's no way to tell the story and not have that be a part of the story. Um, and then it started to make sense to me uh, on a symbolic level of these two humans trying to find their place in all of these different homes. You know, it's almost like the, the golden, you know, uh, Goldilocks and the three bears where it's like you're jumping in and trying this and, you know, trying that. But then there's this like American dream angle to it of people trying to find their place, uh, find their home. Um, and we always knew that I wanted Saleh to have a monologue in Arabic toward the end, uh, in the dining room with all the neighbors of the neighborhood. Um, and that was the one thing I wanted him to write, uh, for himself. So he wrote that monologue. Um, and I was like, you know, this might be the first time, I mean, unless people here, you know, are watching your amazing foreign films, which they are, but like a lot of people might be seeing you for the first time you know, uh, on screens here, like what, like, what, is there anything you would want to say to them? Like, yes, you're talking to the restaurant here and these neighbors, but like, it also felt like a breaking of the fourth wall in a way where it was, a, it's a message to folks who are watching this in America about, you know, obviously he doesn't get into the politics of the conflict, but his confliction of, of his own, um, loss of home. And I felt like it fit perfectly into the theme of the movie um and we also were very conscious of you know this is not a, an immigrant story it's a story about um a flawed human being you know mm -hmm. like the immigrant story is like well hey that's not my story to tell um and it's it's really like a story about uh, this codependent relationship with this b storyline of trying to find your place uh and and to find your home yeah hey, i think it's really you don't hear that that much too of letting actors write things like that uh was that did that kind of continue throughout the process too of like refining dialogue and character moments with uh, all the actors honestly not as much as i was used to working because i'm i can be fluid that way where i mm -hmm. I, I especially i mean it's different because i was in it but where the buffalo roam you know like there we would just riff you know and all of a sudden that makes the cut um but sale also because english is not his first language uh very much just loved the, the screenplay and it was the reason he wanted to do it so anytime i would encourage him to like you know maybe it's this maybe it's that he would kind of remind me i mean we i consider him like a brother now uh he would kind of remind me that like i'm running away from this poetry that i already wrote which is like a, a theme in my life where i'm like i wrote it i loved it and then i keep trying to rewrite it mm -hmm. and he would try to ground me where it's like no dude it's good like don't worry about it so the only part was was his monologue in the restaurant, um, and I mean, I, yeah, I love what he what he came up with. Yeah, that's it's really fascinating. Um, and I also noticed too, you have a, a few Chicago film legends uh, in the film. With uh, like, I, I'm just curious how much of that was like just kind of casting process. But you have Jack Newell and uh, Frank V. Ross, and then the one and only Pat McDonald. Uh, yes, comes yeah. up in too. Yeah, so. Pat, Pat's been a good friend of mine since um, my first short played at Chicago. Like he was, you know, he's a great critic. And I just remember going up to him and I mean, honestly, just having, having a few drinks at one of the parties and just love, loving him as a, as a human being. Um, so yeah, he, I always knew like when I do my first feature, I, I told him from the beginning, like mm -hmm. when I do my first feature, you're getting, you're going to get a, a scene in there, you know? And so yeah. he, was, he was stoked for years. Um, Jack is a friend of mine. 
who came in, also a friend of the producer, Justin's, who was really excited to do that. And I'd never worked with him as an actor. I was just, was, we knew of each other and we were friends. And so that was really cool to be able to work with him as an actor because he's, he's so prolific as a filmmaker too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Frank B. Ross, man, like just as a, as a fan of, of his work, um, as a fan of his work, I met up with him for a lunch one day and just, you know, completely vibed and loved his personality. This one time I took a train out to go meet him in, in his, I think it was, I forget which suburb he lives in, but I went to go visit him. And it was just like what you would think from like a Frank B. Ross film. Like we went to a, a local bar and, you know, everybody's just like, Frank, you know, and it was just so awesome. And I remember telling him, um, dude, like, when I, when I do my first feature, like it would mean the world to me if in any way you could be, you could play a role in it, you know, you could do anything. And um, so for years, he w- I would always send him like, hey, I'm thinking of you for this role. And then when eventually when we shot like a week beforehand, we kind of zeroed in on that character. And yeah, I feel like he was, he was great for the part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're all amazing. It's, I mean, it's something if you know them, it's like, oh, that's a, so cool. Frank, <laughs> Frank Ross is popping up. And uh, Pat yeah, McDonald, yeah. Especially for like Midwestern filmmakers, I feel like it's really cool to be able to see. Yeah. That. Is there, yeah, anything that's going through your mind, uh, like in directing actors who are also filmmakers? Uh, like anything different that you approach than maybe directing someone who's just more specifically an actor solely? Totally. Yeah. Because I mean, they're, they're all, I mean, like especially Jack and Frank, like not only great actors, but like they direct, you know, like mm-hmm. they make, they make great work. So, yeah, I remember, I mean, just being fans of their work, I remember just kind of having to like put that to the side, you know, I'm like, I can't, I can't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and they, yeah, I was kind of a madman sometimes and uh, it got better as the shoot went on, but sometimes I would just get so like coming back to that test shoot where I'm like getting so, you know, micromanaging and like this and that. And honestly, Frank kind of was able to ground me because he's just so funny. Like, so you know easy to talk to and yeah he was he was really good to work with yeah yeah i mean yeah they're both everyone's so amazing in it uh you can yeah just tell that trust and respect is really there um so i mean what else did you learn from this production uh obviously it's very short and you had a smaller crew it sounds like than even on like some of your short films uh so i just what was it like getting to that finishing point of wrapping shooting and uh after all this time and well, so it was it was the most stressful time of my life, and I can't even sugarcoat that. Uh, and you know, if I could touch upon marriage one more time, like, you know, I I had two kids. I was freelancer at the time, and you know, our credit cards were completely maxed out. And I said no to work for three months so I could go do this thing. And I I mean, I had the most amazing support from Celeste. Um, you know, but it it just my whole marriage was falling apart while shooting that film. Um, I was, com- I was completely and utterly broke. Like we had barely enough money to pay rent, you know? Um, and I didn't have enough money to finish shooting the movie. So I'm fundraising while shooting the movie. While also once we would wrap, I would be working these freelance jobs that evening, like at the dining room table of whosoever house we were staying in not telling anybody like this, I just kept myself, but I'm like, we say goodnight, we have dinner. And then like, I'm up doing freelance editing for like a food video for TikTok. You know what I mean? Like doing literally whatever I could to try to get all of these aspects of my life to stay afloat. Um, And there was this one point where I had moved, uh, when I moved from Chicago, there's one thing I left behind and it was a painting that my uncle had painted uh, who's known in Barrington as like this great oil painter. He's fantastic. And he had painted this beautiful picture of uh, four grasshoppers. And he was like, if you ever need to use this as like an, uh, an auction or a fundraising component, you know, please do so. And I had left it, you know, that was the only thing I left at my parents' house. And we had a week left to shoot and I still needed to raise $7,000 cash. Like I had to like hand somebody cash you know, and I don't have any money left. I can barely pay rent. Um, you know, my life is in turmoil personally. And, uh, 
then I rem- and, and I remember this one house I was at, a random house I was at that had like 50 paintings all over the wall. And I was like, maybe they purchased art, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I called them and I'm like, hey, I'm the, we, by then we've been there for weeks. We were known as like, we're the film crew in town. You know, there's some like buzz going around. And I told them I had a painting from Jeff Wells that I would love to show them. And if they'd be interested in purchasing it. And you know what I mean? And they're just like, yeah, sure, uh, come by. And um, so I bubble wrap this thing. Uh, I put it in the car and I'm, I'm sitting in the driveway of their house googling oil painting terminology so that i can go in there and try to sell something like yeah. a total bozo yeah. and uh so i bring it in, i mean it's a big piece too you know so I, I bring it in there they graciously sit wonderful people they sit me down in their living room and you know it's like so you're here to show us a painting you know and as i'm unwrapping it i keep pausing for dramatic you know I, i'm literally <laughs> i'm acting yeah and i'm un- it while talking and then i finally do the reveal um and at the end of the thing they ended up buying it you know what i mean like gave me a check and like i wanted to i mean i probably did i cried so many times during this shoot um it's you know the ad johnny was like my therapist um but you know you, you know that even that check wasn't enough for what i needed so you know at the last minute i'm i'm talking the day before i had to get, hand over this envelope of cash I had a check finally come through for a freelance project, you know, that was like enough to get me to seven, went to a bank, pulled it all out, put it in an envelope. And I literally handed it over at the wrap party and no one ever knew what I was dealing with. No one knew the person who I was giving it to didn't know. The producers didn't know. Um, the only person who knew was my wife Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, uh, dude, it was, it was total man. And I had to show up and direct every day. I had to show yeah. up and do the thing every day. And right after I did that, the follow- so we had just wrapped, hand that over at the wrap party. I wake up the next morning and my appendix burst and I went to the ER and I had to have emergency surgery to have my appendix removed and I didn't have health insurance. And I just finished paying that off, honestly, two months ago. Wow. So that, that was... That was a huge <laughs> yeah in my life of just utter stress and disaster yeah and, cre- it, and creation yeah yeah it, that's so insane because i mean it's really like producing directing a film is enough of like a stressor on its own like not mentioning all these other things is this something where you feel like do you, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to say. I think I feel like it's kind of going back to when we're talking about filming your nephew crying uh, of like, do you think this influenced positively in any, any way, like the actual production of the film, like having this pretty literal fire under you or? Uh, I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm such an emotional person and I am willing to go to battle for these things that are seemingly impossible. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I mean, the restaurant scene, you can't tell when you're watching the movie where he's at, he's at the side of the bar, you know, and it's mm-hmm. the scene where he's talking to her. They were open when we shot that. It's a live yeah. restaurant. And, you know, I feel like there's a big part of you that could be like, oh, we can't do that. We have to have total control. And I was like, you know what? I've come this far. We're shooting it live. I don't care. Put a hidden microphone. You know what I mean? Get a camera behind the bar and we're going to shoot it. And you know, Saleh's pouring his heart into that monologue. And I just remember that was the one time on set where I was behind the camera and I'm just, I'm hearing what he's saying. And, you know, I I had written this story and like, there's this advice that I heard from Paul Schrader a long time ago, you know, when he did Taxi Driver was like, find something personal and wrap it in a metaphor, you know, because here I am listening to this man who, you know, we don't look alike. We're a very different cultural backgrounds but he's here because he wanted to play this conflicted, flawed human being. And I'm listening to him say these words. And I'm like, I've said those words in my, you know what I mean? It was just this like crazy emotional, like felt like I'm looking at myself kind of moment and just realizing, you know, I wish I could lift him up off the bar and just being like, dude, stop thinking about all of these things you think you should have. It should be, or it could be, and just give your wife a kiss. She's right there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you should have left a long time ago. You're a fucking crazy guy. Um, just, you know, put put it down for a minute. Like, tune in. And, 
you know, that was, that was one of those moments for me where, yeah, it was just a very therapeutic, cathartic thing um, where you start to, by writing a story and making a movie that's so deeply personal, you're able to look, put a, turn a lens onto your own life and see, you know, where, where it is that you could improve on. And that, that, that was one of those moments for me. Yeah, no, definitely. And is it, I mean, obviously right after rapping, you have this health issue, but like, I guess more emotionally, uh, once you are rapping this film, uh, there's, I know there's a lot of other stuff going on, but how, how did it feel for you finally getting to this point that you had worked towards for so long and thought about so much of shooting this feature? Like what was going through your head at this uh, point? It was, uh, you, it was euphoric. You know what I mean? It was really, it was really beautiful coming back. I mean, obviously I was in the hospital for like, you know, a day, but then mm -hmm. like I get out recovered for a couple of weeks. And I remember just coming back to Ventura and just, you know, like, but it's kind of funny. I'm like, you know, the grass looks the same. The sky looks the same, you know, like everything's the same, you know? And that's, I guess that's kind of my point is like, you know, did I feel different? Yes. Cause I was on a high, you mm -hmm. know, but at the end of the day, it was really like, I just made another film, you know, it's just longer. Yeah. Um, and it took so much more, you know, it took, it takes so much. Um, and yeah, that one came with consequences. So yeah, like it was, it was a mixed bag for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I think it's one of those things that's hard uh, at any point to like fully separate from any idea or uh, any expectation if you've never really done it before. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to plug my computer in real quick. Okay. Awesome. So yeah, so you're uh wrapped at this point, uh in twenty March twenty nineteen. Uh yeah. is that right? Uh so obviously we know what comes up uh a year later, yeah. but what's what's like the post process for this film like now that you've finished production? Yeah, so the uh we shot and then we also we had a great editor, Jack Bishop, who was who is we were sending the week's footage to him in LA after every week hmm. so by the time we came back we had a full assembly cut within two weeks wow you know so you know audio is all synced all the scenes are synced you know uh it's the, the assembly is as the script was so um you know it was like three hours long <laughs> you know it's crazy mm -hmm. um, and then you know i would meet with jack and uh it was good we timed it that way because i think it was the end of april or early may where we wanted to apply to Gotham again, this time for the labs. So before we had done the project week, now, because this was my first feature, we, we could apply to the labs and uh, you needed a rough cut to be able to apply with of, of your film. So we did, <clears throat> and very grateful we got accepted. So we got accepted. And so that was three workshops, one in July, one in September, and then the last one was in December. Um, and so we spent that whole year, you know, workshopping the cut. We did test screenings at Lisa's house, who was one of the producers, um, getting feedback, you know, similar notes to what you were saying about editing and trying to reorganize scenes, even just as an exercise, mm -hmm. just to see what happens. Um, and then, yeah, of course, like we get to a point where we pushed it too far and we go back a couple cuts. And then some of my favorite scenes, um, personally, we, we just begin, once you look at it, you know, objectively realize in the, in the scheme of the film, it just doesn't fit. So yeah, like you mentioned, Kill Your Darlings, we, we did that and then ended up at the, at the 80 minute cut that we have now. And then, uh, yeah, eventually we all were really satisfied with it. Um, and then the, and then the pandemic hits. So, you know, that kind of yeah. killed a lot of the festival, you know, opportunities um everything was shut down for the whole year uh but it was also you know oddly the timing for the getting people to help us finish the film worked because one of my favorite colorists from company three tyler roth had nothing going on for three weeks mm -hmm. so he colored the film you know and then this wonderful sound designer cindy you know had nothing going on so she sound designed the film like we were able to finish in those two, three months, 
uh, at the beginning of the pandemic um, oh. while everybody was just kind of at home. So that kind of was our opportunity to, to finish it. Yeah. I, yeah, one of the <laughs> a limited bright side, but yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely a positive. Again, of just like it kind of is all happening right place, right time. Uh, yeah, totally. And what did you, I'm curious what you learned from like test screenings and sharing rough cuts with uh, audiences or other people. Uh, I assume that's not something you did a lot or extensively with shorts. Uh, yeah, the only, I think the only one I did it with was where the Buffalo Room we did test screenings of. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I have mixed feelings. Like, I think it's, I think it's great if you, you know, you take, you take what you feel like serves the film and like, obviously, you know, your film is not going to be for everybody. So I feel like once you have those feedback sheets, you can kind of see just like, oh, this person might just not like this type of movie, period. Mm -hmm. Because there's some things that are, that are fixable or changeable and other things that are, well, that's just who I am as a filmmaker. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you take the feedback that serves you and, you know, don't take it personally because you're also showing rough cuts. Um, I, yeah, we did multiple screenings in one of them. I screwed up the export so bad and we didn't like, we didn't QC it. And so there was just like some audio stuff that was horrible mm -hmm. that you know is going to impact somebody's overall opinion of the film, even if it's a technical thing that like, you know, if, if, if that was, if that wasn't like that, maybe they would have seen the movie in a whole different light. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Lisa does a lot of them. And so I kind of leaned on her and, uh, I mean, ultimately it helped us kind of figure a few things out with the third act, um, that was very helpful. So I'm glad we did it. Yeah. And then getting into like kind of festivals, were there specific like film festivals you had your eye on or what was your goal getting this film out there? Yeah. My, my, I mean, one of my biggest goals, I feel like always is director's fortnight in Cannes mm -hmm. or uh, Critics Week, like the sidebar. I just, I've been such a fan of so many films that have played in those. And I, I love what director's fortnight stands for, just like philosophically, mm -hmm. you know, it, it reminds me of like slam dance to Sundance where it's like, you know, I think, I think it was like Godard and, you know, Truffaut. And it's like, they, they started like director's fortnight, you know, as like this independent, like, I don't know. It's invigorating. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I, that's, that's always like the top tier for me. Like I aspire to that one day, um, you know, and I, yeah. So we looked at that. We looked at Toronto because we feel like Sally's work has a great track record at, at Toronto and in Venice. Um, and this, um, this one other one uh, that I, I'm, I'm forgetting now. Um, yeah, I, I can't remember, but uh, that that those are the ones we shot for, and then uh, after that we had our, our other tier, um, and we ultimately ended up premiering at Bend in Oregon uh, with our with our film, and right before we went, the festival got canceled. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it was it was bittersweet. Yeah. So was it largely like your festival run just didn't really happen because it was all 2020? Did you decide not to? wait and try the next year yeah um, and it was just it was tough it was it was yeah. really tough um so we ended up i think we played like five i think we played five five festivals um you know but ultimately through that at the last one we played was in uh the uk uh at northeast international and we won a best feature award and right after that we were able to secure distribution so that it was sort of worth it it helped you know um and we, we distributed through um, Gravitas Ventures. And uh, and like you mentioned at the beginning, just came out in January. So it has been that long of a process Yeah. this one. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, yeah, I think yeah, starting real pre-production, like 2018, it sounds like, or yeah, yeah, yeah. all the way to now. Uh, can you touch on the distribution a little bit, just like what that process was like of finding and then deciding on who to go with and kind of just what that was like from your perspective of getting the film yeah. released in this way. I think there there's power in not being desperate mm -hmm. because you, you will get offers. You know what I mean? Like people will offer. Um, but it's like, you just, I don't know. I think you have to go with your gut and it's like, once you get the offers, you then do your due diligence and look at every single 
company, you know what I mean? And like, see what types of films they're putting out. And like, is your film even going to make sense? You know what I mean? Like, I remember we got this one offer and you're grateful for any offer, but like, we got one that was like all horror movies, you know, like very campy horror movies. And it's just kind of like, well, you know, our movie isn't that, and that doesn't really make sense. So it's kind of an easy no, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but then, yeah, you kind of just whittle it down to the few that you believe in. And then, you know, it, it's a small independent film. So you kind of, you know, you're grateful for any offer you get. And then you kind of take the best one, you know. And yeah. what they offered was was great for us. And, and not only that, um, our producer has a great relationship with the people there. So we knew their reputation was good, um, you know, and other people don't have a good reputation, you know. And so it's always good to ask your other filmmaker friends if, if they've had work distributed, um, you know, you do like some background checks and just see if, yeah. if people are legit, you know, mm-hmm. but with this, our goal from the beginning, um, cause it was, um, in terms of a SAG contract, you know, ultra low budget under six figure movie. Um, our goal the whole time was look, hopefully we make the investors money back, obviously. But our main goal with this after that is to just have it available as possible. So like, you know, can you put it on Apple? Can you get it on Amazon? Can you get it on, you know, just get it out there for people. Um, because ultimately when you make something that's so low budget, you know, you hope that uh, A, people don't know what the budget was. Cause I think it, you know, you can't tell if you watch it. Yeah. And then, you know, B, you, you just, it's like you're, it's like a, you're trying to just get that out there so that people can see it and enjoy and hopefully resonate with it because it will lead you to your next one. Yeah. And what's your relationship with the film now, uh, now that you've had a few months from it kind of being released and now totally out of your hands? Yeah, there was a, you know, right when it was released, it was insanely cathartic. Uh, I live above this coffee shop in, in Ventura and me and like all my neighbors were all just like, you know, celebrating. I, you know, we had, we had a good party and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great high, you know, um, seeing it get out there, seeing it available, friends and family watching it, celebrating it. Um, and now it's, it's, I had to, I had to just kind of forget about it, you know, like it's not, it's not mine anymore. It's like, it's like if one of my kids moved away to college or, you know, moved away from home and it's like, well, I'm just hoping, hoping they're safe and I'm hoping they're around the right people so i hope whoever you know needs to find it finds it because there's a big piece of my heart in that one absolutely and now what's uh what do you kind of have your sights set on next uh like where are you at in the next process yeah so i've you know through that process of that you know insanity uh i uh have just, it sounds funny, but just stopping and smelling the roses. I've been reading, I've been writing. Um, I'm not racing anymore. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just trying to see what, uh, you know, what inspires me for the next one. It's what I want to do with my life. So I am very much heading in that direction of a next one. Uh, but I don't know what it is yet. I have a few that I'm kind of circling around, uh, and excited to see where it leads. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm very excited to see it too. Uh, I'm so grateful for your time and your art and your sharing all of your perspective uh, with the world. It really means a lot. Uh, so thank you so much for being on here. Jake, thank you so much for this awesome conversation.